to the Hey You Podcast, brought to you by Hayaton Education. I'm Matthew Hayaton, and today I'm talking with Joe McGovern about his documentary film, The Other Side, A Liberal Democrat Explores Conservative America. We'll examine some of the highs and lows from Joe's cross-country road trip in search of mutual understanding and respect when it comes to hot-button political issues in America. Okay, so with The Other Side, a liberal Democrat explores conservative America. We're going to talk about the then and the now and kind of toggle between them because there's so much new material to talk about. But I also want to revisit what happened back then. And I thought, Joe, that we could open with the Dalai Lama quote that you sort of burned right into the screen because that really, for me, was a driving thesis for how you did what you did and why it was so successful you know, in engaging the dialogue. So I just wanted to read that to folks in the hopes that they'll also check out the film. And, and the quote was, when you talk, you are only repeating what you already know, but if you listen, you may learn something new. So I want to hear a little bit more about how that, that adage or that proverb really drove you and got you on the road. Yeah, that quote was an afterthought. Uh, when I was editing the film, I, I can't even remember how I found it, but I found it and it was perfect. But that was the sentiment that was driving it. The short version is that I was uh, acting at the time in Henry V at Pacific Resident Theater in Venice. Which I um, saw loved, by the way. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> at night, after I would do a show, I'd come home and I'd watch The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, which was one of my favorite shows back then. And yeah, I just loved especially during the George W. years, the sort of the satire, the satirical way that he would point out the flaws in Fox News and Republicans and conservatives was really sort of like delicious, you know. Uh, but I, as I was watching it, this was spring of 2014, something changed, something, uh, something about the show wasn't as much fun anymore. And I think what happened is that John became a victim of his own satire. In other words, he built a brand that was like, look at what's ridiculous. But there's a thing that happens if you're looking for the ridiculous too much, and that is that you can caricature uh, people. If, if your point is, it stops becoming the truth or some well-rounded version of your viewpoint, the point just becomes finding the ridiculous. So I kind of started to sour on The Daily Show a little bit. And that's when it sort of occurred to me, <clears throat> I wonder if the other side is as bad as we make them out to be. And because I love an adventure, I decided I'd drive around the country and try to figure figure that out. Um, and the point was to, to just like the Dalai Lama quote, to listen and to learn. And so I had a thesis. My thesis was that there is a logic to conservative ideology and that that logic is actually sound. Like even a liberal would agree with the logic. I just didn't know what that logic was. So I was looking for it. Yeah. And I think that you have a, a disarming way of chatting with people pretty openly. Obviously, when we see the polished version of these conversations, 
Some people opted out. Maybe some folks didn't sign the release, as you mentioned at one moment. But in general, I, I saw the people shaking your hand, seemingly just pleased that you were listening and that they thought that this was really maybe, I don't know if I want to use the word healing, but something close to that. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. That was one of the real accomplishments that I felt um, in doing the film was hearing conservatives say to me, hey, you know what, you're the first liberal that I feel really listened to what I had to say. And that was never attractive to me. Like, <laughs> I didn't dream of that happening. It, it just became this validation of what I was doing that I was trying to hold on to the anger that I felt when they expressed their viewpoints, when they explained their perspectives. And instead of getting angry and arguing, I tried to ask like why that made sense or why that was logical or why that, where, how they came to that viewpoint. And often how I would say it is I would say, here's how we feel about that issue. We feel that all this focus on border security, for example, neglects or rejects or ignores our history as a country of immigrants and that it's uh, not in keeping with some of our ideals. So how would you respond to that? So that's how I would conduct the interviews. Yeah, I think that earnestness came through clearly. Some folks might have had their guard up a little more or less, and you even um, unabashedly share that there are times when you are you got a little wrinkled and started to tangle a little bit more with some than others. Let's, let's pull back for one minute and just frame up some of the big issues you tackled in such short time, just so our listeners know. I, I like to call them, when I was preparing for you, the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> you know, being a Western... <laughs> film lover myself. We will talk about you know, size of government, welfare, environment, abortion, gay marriage, racism, and immigration. Those were the Magnificent Seven. Of course, there are more. Um, but I think it would be fun at some point to get back into a couple of these because you do raise this issue in your earnestness to listen about what you call valid values. And you yeah. also mention a term like legitimate concerns. For sure. Rather than attacking their point of view. And I think one that you were the most open-minded about initially might have been tied a little bit between size of government and welfare. And that was this XY relationship that you talked about, you know, between challenge and support, maybe even at an individual level and how to measure successful growth. If the XY were, were maybe challenge and support, what, what happens to that, that growth line For of sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. It didn't surprise me that they didn't have a, that they had a different view on it, but it surprised me how their view and my view matched up with the challenge and support model. So the first time I heard, I'll give you a little backstory. The first time I heard about the challenge and support model of human development was when I was in the Dominican Republic after I graduated from college. I spent a year there doing some volunteer work and I was really not enjoying it. I didn't like the program that I was with. I had some disagreements with the priests that were running the show and I'm nearing the end of the year that I'm there and I'm hosting a group of students that have come down from the States to do 
to do some work. There was a couple that were the chaperones. So the couple and I had a chance to talk for a little bit and they were like, how's it going? And I was like, this is not good. (laughs) And uh, they were like, really, what's going on? And I just sort of explained everything that I was struggling with. And, uh, and they said, you know, it looks like you don't have the balance of challenge and support here with this program. And I was like, tell me more. And so they explained Nevitt Sanford, this psychologist back in the 60s who came up with this model of challenge and support. So the idea is if you have too much support, then there's no incentive for you to learn and grow. If you have too much challenge, then you're going to fail. So the trick is to getting the right balance of challenge and support. So you have the optimal conditions for human development. The problem is you're always dealing with the out of balance and trying to get it back into balance, you know, but anyway, so like when I was talking to the conservatives about welfare, it just sort of struck me that, that they emphasized the challenge part of that equation, um, hard work, lots of conservatives emphasize faith, um, religion, stick to discipline, and me and other liberals will emphasize free programs that train people in skilled labor or help them get jobs or revitalizing communities that need that. But if for optimal human development, we need the right balance of challenge and support, and if conservatives tend to emphasize the challenge part and liberals tend to emphasize the support part, then we need the right mix of conservative and liberal ideas in our social welfare policies. And that was a, that was stunning to me that I arrived at that conclusion because I had always thought my whole life that if everything were liberal and no one was conservative, that everything would be better. But with this realization, I was kind of scientifically arriving at, we need each other. And all of a sudden, you know, the bouncing back and forth between Democrat and um, Republican presidents over the years starts to make sense. Like maybe we as a country have this innate intuition that we need the right balance of challenge and support. And that's why we teeter back and forth between Republican and Democratic presidents. Right. Do you think that a lot of folks who are really wed to say a deep blue or deep red ideology, do you think that that stems from a, a deep understanding of the ideology, like a really lucid view that includes understanding of political events? Or do you think it's, and it might be both, but the other side of this maybe binary question is, is it just a consumption issue where whatever channel you're receiving, whoever you're listening to, is that where it's coming from? I'm curious, when you were listening to so many Republicans, you talk about logic, you talk about that there are valid values and reasons behind some things, even if they're not maybe fully thought out, How much do you think, though, that the people you were talking to had really done the deep work of analyzing their views versus just sort of regurgitating maybe what they'd eaten? I find, well, most of the people who agreed to an interview with me have some kind of uh, interest in politics. So they were pretty well educated in the bills that were being put forward. Like they knew what was happening in government. They had, I would say 90% of the people who I interviewed were way more well-informed about politics 
than I was. Uh, now, I'm, of all the people that I interviewed, I'm the most open, uh, if, I, if I lump myself in with all the people that I interviewed, I would be the most thoughtful in terms of re-examining my own position, etc. Uh, but here's what I think. I think that people generally are well-intentioned and thoughtful. And it's hard to be thoughtful around politics because it's so, it's such a game. So uh, this is one of the, one of the people that I interviewed, um, John Vrottel. He used to be the vice president of the Kansas State Senate. One of the things he said was the, the characteristics that make you a good politician and help you to win an election are not the characteristics that make you good at governance. Mm-hmm. So there's two things. There's the game of politics, right? Whose side are you, you know? Like I was a, I was a Washington football team fan when I was a kid <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Dallas Cowboys were the enemy. And then there's the actual issues, like thinking deeply about like what works. And one of the interesting things, Matthew, is that on the local level, the division between Democrat and Republican, like lessons, like if you're talking about local issues, because everyone wants the pothole to be filled in. Everyone wants the school to not get graffitied. Everyone, you know, like the, the, the divisions break down a little bit, the, the smaller the scope is. So, you know, I, I think you're, you're obviously correct that people often have opinions that they're just handed to them by the media that they consume. Um, but I do think that, I think we all know that. I think, I think even people who are super partisan, I only vote blue or I only vote red and I only do this and everyone else is a jerk, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think that even those people will admit that doesn't really create the best atmosphere for for good governance. This is how I used to think. I'm going to always vote blue because even if there's a Republican that might have some things that I agree with more than a Democrat, in the end, I want as many Democrats to be there as possible so that in general, those things are the things that get passed and become law. We forgive the inadequacies or errors of our own politicians because in terms of the aggregate, our guys are going to do, or gals are going to do more good than the other sides. I I don't begrudge people that opinion because in a two-party system, you only have two choices. And if you think that one is going to do, generally speaking, a better job, that's sort of the end of the conversation. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's not the end of the conversation for me because I'm interested in the details and, and all the different nuances. But um, I think that's what people do. I think generally speaking, again, if we're giving people as much credit as we can, people choose their side knowing that their side isn't perfect, but feeling that their side has, generally speaking, more positive um, aspects than the other side. You know, for sure. But yeah. it's interesting that you are willing to re-examine your own views. And, I, and I'm wondering if um, in the wake of the Trump era, not just his winning, but then everything that happened and even the Capitol riots, do you think that you brought some of your other sideism, you know, openness to understanding how and why that happened? Or do you think, like, had you not done the project, 
Do you think he would have seen the riot differently? Without a doubt. Yeah. I understood the Donald Trump phenomenon at a very early stage, not to like toot my own horn, but I understood what was happening because I had just come off the road from talking to conservatives. And one of the reasons growing up that I was always liberal was because we were always the underdogs. You know, we're the poor and the Republicans are the rich. That was the, the context that I was living in. So I love the underdog, you know, who doesn't love Rudy? You know, like it's like the underdog story is the, that's my, that's my identity, right? Just for the record, <laughs> listeners, you don't mean Rudy Giuliani right now. You mean, <laughs> <laughs> right? I forgot. Yeah. The, the movie Rudy. Yeah. <laughs> Just making sure. No, thank you for doing that. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so in talking to conservatives, one of my huge realizations was that they consider themselves the underdog. Yes. And, 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 and a new voice and a new platform. And, 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 here's, and, and I, I actually, I can see their point. I actually agree that they are the underdog when it comes to certain areas. So in terms of culture, TV and film, TV and film is dominated by a progressive liberal um, um, music, you know, like the, the, the culture of the United States is, is dominated by liberal progressive values. So from that perspective, that underdog mentality that conservatives had, I knew a lot of my, my friends were like, how, like Donald, he's a millionaire. Like, how can he be the champion of these people that you say are the, are the underdogs? And I said, well, he's, it's cause he's a bully, but everyone loves a bully who's punching the bigger bully in the nose. So the fact that Donald Trump could say the things that he could say and, and not get canceled was, was a pretty big deal for them, especially the ardent Trump supporters. It was like, finally, someone was fighting back against the people who'd been dominating them. Yes, and there's a disruption factor that probably was welcomed by a lot of them, regardless of how they felt about him as a person. Sure, sure, yeah. Other people. I, I think, think almost every conservative that I talked to would have the same viewpoint of Donald Trump as a person, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be positive. It would be very similar to what people on my side would say. But it doesn't mean uh, they wouldn't vote for him. Right, and yeah. I think you're right. When you and I used to talk, when we were still working together and we were watching Trump's rise and he wasn't yet the full juggernaut he became, but he was starting to consume a lot of the airwaves. People were not really interviewing the other candidates before he even won the nomination for his party, right? And um, he started sort of dominating Good Morning America, and it started to grow. And I think that a lot of coastal elite people seemed so flabbergasted by his meteoric rise, offended, shocked, didn't see it coming, but you and I were watching rallies that were massive in nature. People were coming out for him very early on in really big droves. And it was alarming to you and me um, and fascinating. But I, I, I'm bringing this up because I would argue that that separation of us and them was so alive and well that people were so stunned that he won. And, and I was so scared that people were stunned. Yeah. That goes back to your project, Joe. These people are kooks. We don't have to listen to them. 
it doesn't matter what they think of their own value system because they're nothing. They'll never be anything. And they're just going to be these, you know, backwoods, uneducated fools who are never going to see the light of day in politics, right? They don't have a place. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a dynamic that people were unaware of. And that dynamic was liberal news organizations profiting off of the Donald Trump phenomenon. He was so headline grabbing. Oh my God. What sells in, in news organizations is, is anger, vitriol. Um, look at how ridiculous these people are. So the fact that he got so much airtime and so many articles writ- were written about him in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, like he dominated that it was so good for business, the business of liberal media. I mean, I would talk every time in the lead up to the election in 2016, I would talk to my, my friends. I was like, I'm going to tell you something <laughs> shocking. And here's what it is. Every time you talk about Donald Trump, that gets him one step closer to the White House. Yeah, it was almost too late by the time some folks realized that. Wait, we gave him all this airtime. Let's take it back. Yeah. Well, now there's no one else talking and nobody really wants to hear anyone else anyway. Being from Los Angeles, being on the West Side, I myself am very much a Democrat and a liberal, but I still felt pretty upset when my liberal friends wanted to have sort of kumbaya circles about how awful it was that we lost the election and what were we going to do? It was so unacceptable. Yeah. Um, And yet, you know, we look at the number of people who don't vote. It's an appallingly large number of people who don't vote. And I know we had a better turnout this last election, of course, than we've ever had, but still shockingly low number. Yeah. Given how few countries have, you know, free elections anyway. I just started writing a book um, about some of my experiences and the documentary being being one of them. And um, I was looking through the internet for some quotes and a quote really applies right here. It's a quote from, from Freud. And it, it goes like this. It says, um, illusions commend themselves to us because they save us pain and allow us to enjoy pleasure instead. We must therefore accept it without complaint when they sometimes collide with a bit of reality against which they are dashed to pieces. That's the, that's why I loved the challenge of dealing with my anger, talking to conservatives. That's why I did that. That's why I've done most of the things in my life, you know, ultra marathons or living in a van and going to the third world to do volunteer work. It's like, I love the experience of discovering my illusions and having them be dashed to pieces in the, the confront that I experience in, in those, in those moments, because there's, they, they lead to a new realization, like a new awareness. I'm wondering now that, you know, we're past Trump when you were on the road, we were in Obama land. Now we're in Biden world. What do you think about what's happening with Biden in terms of the Senate and what he's trying to get done in the lens of the us and them? Do you think there's, there's some room for a brighter day? Well, you know, one of the reasons I was excited about Biden was that he does have that history of reaching across the aisle and, and being the team player on the Hill, you know, you know, from the conservative viewpoint, they would say that Biden 
ran on the promise of bipartisanship and is failing at that promise. And from uh, my liberal perspective, we would say that they're obstructing things that we really need. So that's the, the difference of opinion there. And that's, that's how that, that's just how that works. And when you can get things done, uh, when Obama was able to pass healthcare, for example, it was through the Affordable Care Act, which has some very conservative aspects to it, guaranteeing the health insurance companies clients. So that's when things get creative is when politicians can mix together a, a very liberal idea called universal health care, but pepper it in a capsule and, and encased in some conservative ideology. That's a very creative solution to that. I'm like more than satisfied with the Affordable Care Act, even though it went through the Republican territory of the healthcare business. It's a separate topic. It's more about you and you know how your worldview formed. You talked a little bit about the water you swam in, you know, in your family, yeah. um, the Jesuit tradition of your father, sure. uh, being raised in the Catholic tradition, coming from a different state and having a family um, the size that you did. How much do you, can you talk at all about your father's role in your own life? And because he, he's had such an, a unique profession and I don't even know how much of his professional life he's even allowed to talk to you about, let alone anyone else, right? Obviously. Uh, but is there anything about that experience that you can share that, that really colored your view? Yeah, I think the, um, the, the value that my dad has that I uh, admire the most and try to emulate the most is uh, valuing truth over uh, convenience. So he spent his time in the CIA as a Soviet expert trying to make sure that the truth was championed by the CIA. So the CIA, here's how he used to explain it to me. Um, after the Pearl Harbor and the debacle of the different agencies not sharing intelligence, uh, what if there was a central agency for intelligence where all of the intelligence went, like the defense intelligence, Air Force, the Army, all these different intelligence, they would all funnel to this central intelligence agency. There, there's your names, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. So at its best, the CIA is a reliable place where politicians can go to figure out what's going on in the world. And my dad told me a story one time of where this really worked. <clears throat> so in the late 60s, everyone in the administration thought that the Chinese and the Russians were allies because they were both communist states. My dad was the head of the Soviet branch in the CIA at the time. And he and his buddies there knew that the Chinese and the Russians hated each other. So he, he was able, they were able to meet with Kissinger and tell him, Hey, you can leverage these guys against each other. They hate each other. Kissinger was like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not true. No. Yeah. Here. And here's our data. Here's our intelligence. Here's, here's our best guess as to what's going on between these two countries. They're not, friends and you can leverage them against each other. So then Nixon takes this trip. He's able to get some a really significant nuclear arms treaty passed with Russia 
and and opens up economic ties to to China. All this, but most important for my dad was the nuclear agreement. But they only were able to do that because Kissinger and Nixon had the information that my dad and his branch gave them, which was, hey, the Russians and the Chinese are not friends. You can use this dynamic. So that was like a real amazing win for him and the people that he worked with. So, um, but it went against the domino theory, the whole reason we were in Vietnam, all that stuff. So my dad has always been speaking speaking the truth, even if it's unpopular. As the years went by, um, directors of the CIA became more and more political. And instead of like the president coming to the CIA, hey, what's happening in Nicaragua? I, I need to do this and I need to know what's happening. Instead of telling the president what's happening, the CIA would say, well, what do you want to be happening? Uh, well, it'd be really nice if the Sandinistas, blah, 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 like, oh, okay, well, then we'll say that's, what, that's what's happening. And that's what, when my dad got pretty dis disillusioned with, uh, with the CIA. So, uh, but, so that really, really stuck with me. I really love that. I love that that idea of of telling the truth and having an unpleasant consequence to it. My little version of that in in the documentary is telling the truth that you know there's valid values and legitimate concerns on the Republican conservative side. If that's my small little speaking the truth, even though it might be unpopular, then that's definitely come from my dad. So. I'm just curious of one last thing, which is your view on sort of radicalism, you know, revolutionary politics that doesn't fit neatly into the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. At, at the end, at the very end of the film, I interviewed the, the only non-conservative that I have in the film, and his name is Greg, Greg Orman. And he was a, um, he ran for governor in Kansas a couple times. He's a he's an independent. And uh, he just sort of summed up everything that I had experienced. And that is that for every issue that you have, there's two competing values that you need to balance. And both of those values are valid. So name any, okay, we can go through the, you know, the Magnificent Seven here. You know, <laughs> the easiest, one of the easiest ones to do it with is immigration. The the value of conservatives is a secure border and the value for liberals like me is a humane immigration policy. Both of those are important and both of those are valid. And we need to, we need to figure out how to balance those two because sometimes those two things, they butt heads against each other. And I still lean liberal because the values on the liberal side are the ones that I like more. Like I, I prefer a humane immigration policy over a secure border, but I acknowledge that a secure border is important. So I tend to like the things, the values, I like the values in each of the issues um, on the liberal side more than I like the values on the conservatives. We're weighing things. So right, like, like I was saying before, like secure border, humane immigration policy. So we're talking about the, when I think of people who are radical, I feel like they, um, I feel like they get away with not having to grapple. Because there's no dialogue at that point. It's just, it or, is or they're not, they're not, they're not dealing with the inconvenient truth, the inconvenient facts to their so, you know, it's like Viva la Revolución, but like, okay, but what about all these, okay, have you considered all the people that are going to die in your revolution? 
well, yeah, I'm a revolution, you know? So it's like, okay, but, but you know, going, I, 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 I respect people for their views, whatever view you have, if you're like very, you know, far on the other, on either end of the spectrum, I respect your, your view, but I'll respect you more if you've considered all the details. I get that. But on the other hand, there could be some radicalism that brings about change only because it's radical, because it disrupts. And even if it, it there's some uh, collateral challenges there, you could argue that the net of it is still positive, depending on what happens. That's a good point. That's a good point. People with, with viewpoints like me wouldn't change much, <laughs> you know, like I think about like Martin Luther King fighting against segregation and, you know, peaceful protests like that, that would definitely be considered radical in the time and I'd be 100% for it. So yeah, you're, I guess I'm thinking of radical in terms of like, maybe the more mundane issues. It seemed to me like that it was very clear that there was an injustice there. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I was, I guess I just have one last one for you just for fun. And that is, I mean, if you, I know your life's radically changed, <laughs> <You know, laughs> <they're> <laughs> right? You can't just hop in the van again, even if it's better outfitted. You know, I, don't, I don't, I don't know if your two loved ones besides Charlie are loyal enough to uh, get any van with you for that long. But if you were to go back out there, do you, yeah. I would absolutely love to watch it. Uh, and I'm excited that you're working on a book. I, do, you, do you see yourself possibly um, making more documentaries? Are you thinking you're, you're heading more toward writing? What's next for you? Yeah, so um, so Claire and I, my wife Claire, um, and I have been talking about this a lot recently um, because there is something, there's something that's next uh, and we're not quite sure what. But we are um, we're playing with the idea of like a uh, some sort of docu style, like a like a docu series. We're not quite sure like what it would entail, you know. Like I've I've gone around and I've I've talked to conservatives, so I've, I've sort of done that one already. Uh, so what's the next thing, or is it revisiting that, or is it going to like places where people are disagreeing or hate each other, and is there some sort of like Am I like an amateur mediator? Like, what is it that I want to do? But the, the, the concept of all I know is that I want whatever it is to have to really challenge me to, I don't want to just regurgitate the same challenges that I've already had. I want something new or the same thing in a more intense way or in a different context or something that I think is what's next. And the book is a retrospective on the film, uh, the v time in the VW, um, my short minor league professional soccer career, our time, my, my dad in the CIA, our time in Germany, like a, a, a lots of almost like a memoir, but encased inside of here's where this is where it's very typically me encased inside of um, an investigation into different concepts such as um, acceptance. So what does it mean to accept something? How does that work? Um, what, what do you do when you regret something? Uh, what, how do you resolve things that you regret from your past? How do you feel good about it? Or uh, God, I, I, I thought, think, think a lot about religion and, and, and where supernatural comes into play and, and what that's about. Well, I, I think whatever you decide, I think what's, what's going to be so fascinating about it is that your, your openness to be vulnerable, to take some risks, to be surprised, to be uncomfortable. 
Yeah. And for it to go sideways on you in the best way. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been really fun. I really appreciate the time, Joe. Yeah, totally. Thanks. This is a great trip down memory. It was really fun. recommend watching Joe's documentary, which you can stream for free from his website, theothersidedocumentary.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Hey You Podcast.